Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past and present. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Alex, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia-Pacific and College of the Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. And, as a very special treat, we're also doing this in conjunction with the Australian National Centre for Latin American Studies. Now, today's show is going to take a slightly unusual format. Rather than just a standard interview, I have a couple of guests and a fellow panellist. So this is going to be a bit of an extended panel today. So we have Dr. Sarah Abel. Hello. Who is a cultural anthropologist and British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Cambridge's Centre of Latin American Studies. Her research focuses broadly on the dynamics of race, racism and anti-racism in American societies. And in particular, she's interested in the influence of science and technology in constructing links between identities and bodies. Her upcoming monograph, Permanent Markers, Race, Ancestry and the Body After the Genome, will be published by the University of North Carolina Press later this year. We also have Associate Professor Kate Freeman. Hi, Alex. Who is an archaeologist who specialises in European later prehistory and material culture studies. Her research is situated broadly in dialogue with social studies of technology, and her most recent monograph is An Archaeology of Innovation, published in early 2021 by Manchester University Press. She is particularly interested in how archaeologists make meaning from quite disparate data, including the increasing numbers of ancient DNA sequences. And I'm joined with a special co-host, Dr. Carolyn Schuster. Hi, saludos. Who is a senior lecturer and Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University. Her current research focuses on disaster capitalism and climate insurance in Paraguay, which she explores in a forthcoming graphic ethnography, Perdida, a story of weather and finance at the edge of disaster, from the University of Toronto Press. And disclaimer, Carly is also my supervisor. On today's show, we talk about DNA testing and how it interacts with constructions of race and identity. In particular, we talk about DNA tests and how they're used by scientists, companies, and the broader public in different ways, and how they shape our understandings of race, both intentionally and unintentionally. Our conversation includes the many ways that DNA data bring the past into the present, as well as what it leaves behind and ignores. We also discuss differences in perceptions of race between the US and Brazil, which does touch on topics of sexual violence. Catherine and Sarah also talk us through the interaction between DNA data and kinship ties, both in the present and the distant past, and how it can both help establish ties and obscure others. Finally, for those curious as to why there's an archaeologist on the familiar strange, this panel was inspired by the Four Fields approach, in which archaeology, linguistic anthropology, bioanthropology, and cultural anthropology are all considered subdisciplines of anthropology. It's more of a US thing where it's sometimes colloquially referred to as stones, tones, bones, and thrones. Also, because this is a panel and we've got multiple guests, we spend a little bit more time on the discussion. So buckle up, it's a long one. And before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? 
Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, our special extended panel. So, today's show is a little unusual. We've got a few people on from different disciplines. But a common theme is DNA. And in one of Sarah's pieces, she talks about how DNA testing can be a way to bring the past into the present. Sarah, would you like to tell us a bit more about what you mean by that? Sure. Maybe it's a good place to start for anyone who's not familiar with DNA ancestry testing. So this is the main topic of the research that I'm talking about today. And DNA ancestry testing can refer to various different techniques for inferring ancestry based on comparing an individual's DNA to other individuals or to populations around the world. There's a caveat, which is in commercial ancestry testing, which are the tests that you've probably seen by Ancestry DNA and 23andMe and MyHeritage, is that they're usually working with contemporary and living populations. So it's not actually a kind of historical technique, but it's a way of comparing your relatedness to other people who are alive today around the world to try and give an estimate of your biological relatedness. The companies themselves tend to set it up as a a kind of eternal human question that everyone's always asking themselves who we are, where do we come from, both on a personal individual level, but also on on the level of the species now. So on the surface, these companies claim to be responding to this universal question. But at the same time, I think people come to these tests for a lot of different reasons. You know, the way we construct identities as well inevitably draws on a sense of who came before us, who, you know, who our community are, who our our family are, and all of the different things that build us into who we are. And I actually, I'm, I'm going to jump in and say, I think there's actually less metaphor and more reality in what you said than maybe you realize. And this is something coming from a kind of archaeological perspective. One of the things we always talk about is the way that the past and the present kind of touch each other and how people are or aren't aware of that. So on the one hand, you have that issue where the kind of visceral connection of substance and blood and genetic material makes things feel a lot more personal. Uh, And it makes that kind of past story suddenly become extremely relevant in the present in the ways that kind of the wider public really connect with. But on the other, it's something that, you know, I've been grappling with a bit in my work and I've been talking with colleagues about, we don't really have a handle on yet. There's a really unique kind of temporality to genetic data because, you know, when the people who are talking about how we use this in archaeology, one of the ways we use it is to look at how gene flow patterns change over time. And we can take one ancient individual and do our best to map their genetic profile. And by we, I certainly don't mean me. I'm not the one who sits in the lab and does that. Those people are way more systematic and way more scientific than I am. I'm the one who sits and thinks about, you know, how we understand and interpret this data. You know, the the archaeogeneticists take this ancient genome, they disentangle it, and then they can tell you a story about gene flow and migration patterns or parentage and relatedness. And, you know, talking with them, what they say is they're pretty comfortable extrapolating out about five generations from one genome. So every individual, we, we often kind of look at these genetic papers that have three or five prehistoric individuals whose genomes have been mapped, and then these huge conclusions are drawn from them. And on one hand, you have to have huge conclusions to get into nature. But on the other, um, each of those individuals contains kind of five generations of data. And can I ask you a question there. When you're talking about big claims that get you into nature, 
What would you? What sort of big claims are we talking? There's about? a very famous paper from 2015 that's credited with a lot of the kind of migrationist turn in archaeology, and it came with this kind of delightfully expansive title, "Massive Migrations." that was looking at a very small number of genetic profiles and using that to argue that there was a, a huge genetic turnover in the vicinity of the third millennium BC that was being correlated directly with an archaeological culture. And an archaeological culture, for those who don't know, is a construct made by archaeologists who are looking at normative assemblages of usually burial practices, sets of material culture, structures or settlement types, maybe subsistence patterns, and saying that this kind of group is more like itself than like other people. And so we call that a culture as a kind of heuristic for interpreting. One of the problems is that they're being treated as if they're real things that emerge from the past rather than things archaeologists have invented. And then they're being tied to specific genetic profiles. Uh, so the massive migration paper, and I, I know the, the lead author very well, and he's kind of learned the lessons of that, I think. Uh, he talks kind of quite publicly about maybe not having such expansive titles anymore and thinking a bit more about what data his claims are being made from. So then what sort of claims do you see that we can, what are some useful claims that we can get out of uh, ancient DNA data? Our data is broken and fragmented and piecemeal and patchy and not representative. So any data is an advantage on no data or broken data, even if that data we're working with is imperfect. There's actually a really neat paper from a couple of years ago um, where a couple of geneticists and archaeologists and statisticians sat there and tried to correlate the patterns of gene flow with major environmental patterns. So looking at like deforestation and environmental shifts, not specifically or necessarily looking at you know, agricultural people bringing agriculture, which is something that's a little bit more brutal. And you do see that in the archaeological papers, but actually trying to step back and say, are we seeing environmental shifts that are happening at the same time as patterns in gene flow, or aren't we? Is this something that we think people are having an impact or different people are having an impact on the local environment? And so it was um, a really neat piece of kind of speculative research. So you get that sort of thing. You also get some really neat patterns where they're starting, as we're kind of accumulating more and more ancient genomes, you're starting to be able to actually connect individuals in the past. And I've, I've referred to this in print is kind of, you have your vertical lineage, which is, you know, ancestry testing in the modern world, but it's a similar sort of thing where you say, oh, well, this individual, what's their kind of five generations and how does that show migration? That's the kind of vertical lineage studies. But we're starting to be able to do kind of horizontal lineage studies and identify family members or siblings. There's a recent example in Europe where they found two medieval individuals, two Viking individuals, who were probably either brothers or kind of uncle and nephew sort of relationship, one buried in Scandinavia, one buried in Britain. And they've actually brought their two bodies together for a major museum exhibit on Vikings. And so they've kind of brought them back together as family. And I think that's a really kind of interesting use of the material, but also one that speaks to the public and speaks to that kind of public facing element of telling stories about the past that really connect with people in the present. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, but it also serves as a really nice segue to some of Sarah's work, because your work touches both on migration, some of the largest scale migration we've ever seen, and constructions of related or ideas of relatedness. Now, for our audience, would you like to talk through your research a little? So the research that kind of comes together in, in my upcoming book is largely from my PhD research, which was part of a 
European project uh, called Eurotest, which was about the histories and legacies of the transatlantic trade and enslaved Africans. My project, what it did was to look at the way DNA ancestry testing technologies are being used both by scientists, um, but also by companies and by communities and individuals to try and piece together the histories and the genealogies of people whose families were displaced by the transatlantic trade. And my project looked in particular at, at Brazil and the United States. So what I was looking at was in part the, the way that that people are trying to contest on the one hand the erasure of African and African-American. And when I say African-American, I'm not just referring to the US, but I'm referring to broadly the different African populations in the Americas. So the way these histories have been kind of silenced, erased, and this goes right down to the individual levels. So one of the mechanisms of slavery was to take away the individual's identity. So this would happen in lots of different ways, the, the dehumanizing conditions of, of the slave ship. When people arrived in the Americas, they would often be baptized, or sometimes that would happen before they left. Um, they would be given new names. Sometimes these were degrading names. They're not names that you would give to your child. All of these things contributed to the kind of erasure of identity. Sarah, one thing that struck me as really interesting in your work was the contrast between the approaches between genealogists in the United States and comparing that to some of your interview data in Brazil, which had a very different kind of approach to family history and how that's related across generations. So I wonder if you could talk through the politics of memory and kind of kinship relatedness in those two different contexts. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I think one of the important things to, to to mention that that kind of helps make sense of these is that different kind of foundational myths play in the way that we think about ancestry and the way we relate to genealogy. So in the case of the US, a really fundamental story to bear in mind is Alex Haley's book um, and also miniseries, uh, mini TV miniseries called Roots, uh, which came out in the late uh, 1970s. And it it's really hard to overstate the impact that, that this had on not just the, the generations that saw and read it at the time, but um, that it continues to have in US culture, not just for, for African Americans. So that really was revolutionary in terms of inspiring lots of African Americans, but also it's important to say not just African Americans, it inspired, I think, a huge amount of people to go to the archives, start researching their genealogy. And since then, there's been a lot of work, not just by individuals, but also on a kind of institutional level. So you start to see these companies emerging who are collating archives. And by the early 2000s, they're, they're also putting them online. I think actually a little bit earlier in the 1990s, you start to have yeah the genesis of these online ancestry platforms which are also very influential in kind of democratizing family history research. It makes it a lot more accessible. You don't have to go to a town, you know, hundreds of miles away or thousands of miles away to, to look at your, your records. You can, you can access them online. And DNA ancestry testing in the case of the US has kind of gone hand in hand with these developments and they're being used, they're being used in different ways. I think in the kind of the more sophisticated cases that I encountered in, in my research and the interviews that I did with African-American 
genealogists in the US, there are people who are using in particular relative matching features of commercial DNA tests to try and verify kind of hypothetical genealogical links that they've already established in their oral and documentary research, but they haven't been able to substantiate it. So they can use that to kind of refute or deny a potential genealogical link, or also to try and generate new new kind of clues and new, new kind of pointers for, for their research. And this is this has been really revolutionary for in particular African-American genealogists where the documentary traces can be rather scarce. In Brazil, the relationship to genealogy is, is rather different. So in Brazil, we have the kind of overriding national narrative is one of mixture. And when I was doing my fieldwork there, it was very common to hear people say things like, we're all mixed up in Brazil, like no one knows who's who. You know, we have this crazy mixture. And the, it gives this idea that whereas in the US, there was this history of a racial regime that was based on the idea of separation, not that there wasn't mixing between white and black individuals, but that anyone who had any black ancestry would be classified as black. You know, you don't have this in between or kind of mixed category, you're either one or the other. In Brazil, that, that didn't really exist. There were some attempts in the colonial period to kind of systematize this mixture, but that hasn't kind of continued in a, in a kind of strict form. So in Brazil, you have people who would identify as, as black or Afro-Brazilian, but they know that there is probably a huge amount of, of mixture in their, in their ancestry, and they don't necessarily see their ancestry as, as kind of connecting to lineages that go back all the way to, to Africa. Because there isn't the same culture of, of genealogy, in Brazil genealogy is, is really something that's traditionally been restricted to really kind of the upper classes. It's still associated with people who think they may be connected to royalty or to kind of very auspicious lineages. It's just not something that's available to the general public and you don't have the same infrastructure as in the US. There aren't online databases and archives that are not necessarily sort of accessible to the public or organized uh, in a way that would make it easy to do genealogical research if you went there. There are other ways of, of connecting with Africa and with a sense of, of African ancestry, for example, Afro-Brazilian religions like Candomblé. This isn't, however, kind of linked to genetics. So, you know, you don't have to claim a kind of biological African ancestry to be initiated and create these spiritual links. So this idea of tracing by kind of bloodlines is is really not there in the same way in, in Brazil. And it's worth mentioning as well that DNA testing has been around for a couple of decades in, in Brazil. It's a country that has a, a thriving genetic community and population genetics research. Whereas there have been kind of several public-facing projects that have attempted to DNA test famous Brazilians and even famous Afro-Brazilians and say something about their ancestry. These have usually tended to just emphasize how mixed everyone is rather than, than really even posing very much the question of whether these tests could be used to trace people's lineages back to an African ethnic group. And definitely there hasn't really been any question of trying to combine DNA research with genealogical research or relative matching or anything like that in the same way as in, in the US. And 
particularly these admixture tests have been have been framed in quite a problematic way. But I will ask quickly, uh, when you say admixture test, what are you talking about and what would a result from an admixture test say it's telling me? Admixture tests, on a very basic level, what they're doing is to look at a selection of markers from across your genome. So they'd look at specific ancestry informative markers that have been identified because they vary among populations around the world, even though, of course, we share 99.7 or uh, I think 99.9% of our... Something phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> of, our, of our DNA among everyone, everyone who's living. So this is really like a, a very... Digging into the tiny kind of 0. whatever percentage where we vary among populations and individuals. So they would look at those markers and in the kind of early tests, you'd maybe even just be looking at 35 markers or maybe 100 markers. Now there's much more sophisticated admixture tests, which are looking more on the level of, of the hundreds and thousands of, of markers across, across your genome. And they would, again, compare those, those markers with the data that they have for different populations around the world. And the results would be expressed as a series of percentages. Usually they would first be broken down into kind of continental groups. So X percent uh, sub-Saharan African, X percent East Asian, X percent European, for example. Those were the, the basic tests would probably just give you those continental values with a, with a certain degree of statistical error. The more sophisticated tests, the ones that you probably buy off the internet now, would give you maybe first those, those kind of overarching continental groupings, but within that they'd give you, who knows, between... 20, 30, or maybe many more, kind of 150 uh, subpopulations from from around the world. And I'm actually going to jump in there and say one of the things they do with that specifically is link that to archaeological populations as well. And that's done in advertising, but also in some of the tests, they'll say things like X percent Viking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is like a huge problem. Yeah, no, Catherine, thank you for pointing that out because you actually sort of pipped my next question at the post because there seems to be at least in the way they advertise these tests a funny mixing between the past and the present because as you're saying sarah if i'm understanding correctly when they give you these percentage this percentage that percentage whatever they're compared to mostly contemporary populations they're not comparing it to archaeological data but Catherine, you're saying that some of these tests actually compare to dna that was dug up somewhere or whatever oh no, they just say they do so in the same way oh. that we talk about these kind of modern populations they will cluster off so i think what sarah didn't quite get to because you asked about the testing and i jumped in was that the other thing about this is that none of these populations are real populations this is defined largely by statistical categories the amount of clustering you do uh, to the data creates those different categories and then they're often given these kind of very convenient regional names usually because a proportion of the samples have been collected in that region. But it's it's all statistics, lies, damn lies in statistics. Uh, and which is why if you do an ancestry test, your ancestry proportions that the test gives you will change over time as their pool of data changes, the categories will shift. Maybe if they change their algorithm and it affects the clusters, or if they get more data from different areas, that will also shift the balance of their clustering, which is why people's membership. But what they do is that some of them identify um, <clears throat> specific kind of regional clusters and then attach those to past 
named groups. So you'll see, you know, uh, there, there is a, a large trace of Scandinavian genetics that sits across the North Sea from uh, Ireland right up to Norway. And that certainly does have a history that goes through kind of a thousand years ago with the Viking expansion. But you'll see people who have that kind of shared cluster uh, in some tests that will ping up as Viking. Um, or it may not be the name, it'll be something like Scandinavian, and then you click through and it says Viking, which isn't terribly informative, but gives a sense of how people kind of engage with that past present within the data. Yeah, you, you mentioned sometimes these are one populations that have historical labels. Also, the opposite happens. You have contemporary labels that are used for populations that are supposed to have some kind of historical con continuity. But if you go back even 150 years or so on, some of these, you know, some of them are names of really of nation states, which didn't exist, you know, 150, 200 years ago, or even, you know, 100 years ago. That's another kind of problem with labeling it's maybe also interesting to to kind of mention that these labels and these products are produced by scientists who who have these concerns in, in mind and they they know that there's an issue with using these statistically formed and kind of purified populations it's debatable to what extent that actually comes through to kind of regular customers but they're also kind of co-produced by the marketing sections of these companies who are obviously thinking much more in terms of what is the public going to connect to? What will they identify with? And there is definitely very much an intent to, to create an emotional bond and an emotional reaction to these categories. Otherwise, you could maybe just put a series of numbers and letters together to signify these different categories. But of course, no one would be that interested. Oh, see, you say no one would be that interested, but I have unfortunately spent a large amount of time on white supremacist forums, and they love those number categories because that's how they trace particularly Y chromosome lineages that they claim is more white or less white. You'll get, you know, something like R1A1, A1, A2, and you'll see a thousand posts about R1A1, A1, A2, and where it's been picked up in prehistoric populations and how that connects to their ideas of their white ancestry. One thing that's really interesting about the conversation that you sort of drawn together is that the, the DNA work, as, sorry, as you point out in one of your essays, requires extreme contextual knowledge. You need so much kind of social work to make any of this make sense. And that that contextual knowledge is political and social. It doesn't just exist in a kind of scientific kind of vacuum. So talk us through how white supremacy has kind of co-opted the genetics debate. It's, it's a really important point to mention that these companies are selling these products as if ancestry can be looked at objectively, as if, you know, they can provide an ancestry report for anyone in the world and it will be objective and it will just show their ancestry. I have taken a test with Ancestry DNA, my test also comes back as 100% uh, European. For me, that doesn't instantly bring up a kind of narrative of, of white racial purity and so on, because this is, you know, this is something that in my work I've worked for a long time to deconstruct those kinds of biological essentialist narratives. But I think there's a problem there where those results are immediately available, where it's kind of second nature to many companies to list the results first as continental categories, which 
for many people connect instantly with a, a kind of traditional idea of racial categories, even though scientists, you know, geneticists will immediately say, most geneticists will immediately say that, you know, this is not the same thing. These are, these are not races in the kind of sense that people might understand. So the fact that these results are provided immediately in these continental categories, I think, opens up that possibility to people to connect the ancestry results to a kind of racial or, or blood quantum interpretation. Actually, I think ancestry now has changed the way it, it displays its results. So it no longer comes up with X percent European, it just gives kind of subpopulations. That's not to say that they've completely mitigated the, the problem because, you know, these big continental categories are, are made more obviously linkable to ideas of kind of traditional ideas of race. But that's not to say that a group that they're claiming is, is an ethnic population can also be equally kind of politically contentious in, in some contexts. So to give the kind of time depth version of that, Archaeology, like anthropology, is a discipline with a lot of very ugly things in its past. More so than anthropology, it has not always reckoned with those well. Archaeology as a field kind of crystallized into a formal discipline alongside European colonialism, alongside the kind of nationalist project of the 18th and 19th century, uh, and a lot of early archaeology was bound up in looking at these histories and connecting those. Not to say that people in other parts of the world and other times weren't interested in the past. We have lots of examples of uh, prehistoric people picking up old things, of Vikings picking up stone tools and doing really cool stuff with it, of Romans building whole temples full of Paleolithic hand axes. But the way that kind of 18th and 19th century Europeans were engaging with the material detritus of the past, a lot of it was around ideas of, of building lineages and drawing connections. But it was this kind of very clear sense that we're looking at things that tell us about who we are in the present and this idea of lineage and connection. It's been part of the field's DNA. So to a certain extent, the idea that we're kind of entangling past and present through the materials we study is very, you know, unsurprising. And the fact that this often has a kind of deeply Eurocentric, verging on somewhat racist to explicitly racist tinge. Uh, also reasonably unsurprising. And there are you know, very specific examples of archaeological developments from the 19th and early 20th century that were about actually doing this work of starting in the, the present day and then working from history back until you have historical named peoples. These would be early medieval people. Uh, migration period is the term you often hear for you know, the first millennium into the maybe very early second millennium, but mostly first millennium AD but you look for these kind of named tribes in the migration period and you identify sets of material culture that are dated to and in the place of that named tribe. And then you look at change over time and try and track that material culture back to see the migrations of that tribe over time to find the homeland. And you should be starting to hear kind of words that are a little worrying, the homeland or the mother country of that, that particular named tribe. And they were reading those kind of back into prehistory. And that archaeology movement, settlement archaeology is what it is called, very rapidly turned into Nazi archaeology. And actually, there were a lot of Nazi archaeologists. Uh, the Nazis spent a lot of money on archaeology doing exactly this, finding the origins of specific peoples that proved where their homelands were, where their kind of racial and ethnic and territorial connections were. And that connection of 
blood and soil is a key part of that white supremacist, Nazi fascist ideology. And to a certain extent, uh, and I want to be really careful here to say that this is not something that's coming intentionally from scientists. This is something that's happening because all this is out in the ether, because there are historical ways that we talk about ancient communities, because there are historical ways that we talk about lineage and blood and descent and DNA. Some of the archaeological work is very easy to read onto that same sort of blood and soil narrative, where you have genetic evidence of population movement. There are clearly people having sex with people whose ancestry is kind of in another place. And because we're archaeology and we look at space and place a lot, we can then start attaching that to locations and to nice distribution maps. And it starts getting very dubious very fast, particularly once it hits the kind of wilds of the internet. And I think a lot of the scientists involved really weren't prepared for that. They didn't have a sense that that was something that happened. They didn't have a sense that that was something that their data was feeding into. They absolutely do have a sense now. And that's something, a big change in the last few years is that the, the archeologists and the ancient geneticists are extremely aware of who's reading their work and how they're reading it. And they're doing a lot of work to reframe it so that that doesn't happen, or at least doesn't happen so easily. Um, but there is that kind of long connection of race and archaeology, and particularly white supremacy and archaeology. And when you add in genetics, which also has its own ideas of lineage and connection, those kind of deep eugenic ideas that who you were and what your blood is says something about who you are and how you are in society, it starts getting very ugly very fast. I just wanted to say as well that there's often this idea, I think, particularly among geneticists and DNA testing companies that are based more in the global north, maybe in the US and, and Europe, that that their products have an inherently anti-racist narrative because they talk about mixture, because everyone's going to get a result that shows a certain mixture. Even if you get a 100% European result, within that you're going to see mixtures of, of different European populations. And I think it's important just to kind of push back on that a little bit. And what has been interesting about the research that I've been doing in, in Brazil and, and also more recently in, in Mexico, which are countries that are based on these founding narratives of mixture is to see that actually mixture can as a narrative can be thoroughly compatible with regimes of racial supremacy white supremacy so just to to kind of give an illustration for example in brazil in the early 2000s there started to be a lot of excitement around dna ancestry testing and there were some kind of projects that were done by prominent magazines and media outlets where they would test the DNA of celebrities. So and I look at one of these, these projects in my research, and it happened at, at the same time that the government was introducing racial quotas at federal universities. This was a very controversial project. It's kind of Hard to hard to get a grasp on how polemical it was because it was hugely polemical in in the media and in, among academics. There's some data to suggest that many Brazilians supported the quotas, but but there was 
also a huge amount of alarmism about the idea that this was Brazil's first kind of racial policy and that this was quickly going to turn into the US. This was going to be the start of racial segregation in a society that had never, you know, never tried to separate people of different racial backgrounds. In a sense, it's a little bit disingenuous because, you know, even if segregation never existed formally in Brazil, there are you know, deep patterns of urban segregation and in Brazil, like many parts of Latin America, race and class are kind of thoroughly intertwined. So the likelihood is that the darker skinned you are, the more kind of African or indigenous physical features you have, the kind of poorer opportunities you will have in terms of social mobility, in terms of also access to healthcare, and your life expectancy in, in terms of many different social indicators. So the idea was that these quotas would try and kind of arrest the structural racism that, that exists in Brazilian society and give more access and, and kind of greater social mobility, mobility to Afro-Brazilians and, and generally kind of darker skinned Brazilians who had generally been excluded from these upper echelons of, of society. And at the time, there was a lot of, you could say, confusion or potentially kind of intentional creation of, of confusion about what should be the best way of assigning quotas and, and deciding eligibility. And one of the things that people quickly seemed to latch onto was the idea that DNA ancestry testing exists. This is an objective and scientific thing. It comes from genetics, which is known for, for being an anti-racist science. So this would be an easy way of telling who was or wasn't black and who therefore should or shouldn't be eligible for, for quotas. The problem is that, at least with these early ancestry tests, what you would find is that the ancestry results wouldn't necessarily align in the way you might expect with, with a person's uh, physical appearance. So there was a famous result in one of these features that was done by BBC Brazil in 2007, where it's a samba artist called Neguinho da Beja Flor, who is very dark skinned, kind of looks phenotypically very kind of African, and he was attributed something like, I think, 60, 68% European ancestry. And this was kind of, even though in general, the results of the different people that took part in the project were, were very varied. And, you know, there were some people that had close to 100% African ancestry as estimated by these tests. There was a huge amount of, of attention paid to this, this particular case. And it was used to argue that actually, there's no way of knowing, you know, you can look one way, but you can, you know, your ancestry can tell a different story. And just to say that when I did my research in Brazil and I talked to people who were taking DNA tests as part of a, a scientific project, I did encounter a lot of confusion around what they could read into the DNA test in terms of what it said about their kind of race, doing air quotes here. So people who considered that for where they lived, they felt like they were, they were sort of darker skin than average and they knew that they had relatives who were much darker skinned or, or you know, relatives who counted themselves as Afro-Brazilian or even family stories of, of ancestors who'd been enslaved. So they felt a strong kind of cultural affiliation to blackness, but they weren't sure whether or not that counted as a criterion of, of eligibility. And I think that here, that it's a problem really to do with racial literacy, to use a term by Franz Windance Twine, um, it's to do with this confusion that has been sown by these narratives of mixture, which have always been 
kind of counterposed to what's happening in, in the US. You know, it's mixture instead of segregation. And that's always been seen presented as a kind of anti-racist thing where, you know, mixture erases racial distinctions. But what that's also kind of promoted is this confusion and this blindness towards the very real racism that occurs on many many levels of society, including within families and from the kind of personal intimate level to, you know, institutional and structural levels. The problem isn't exactly the tests, although the tests have problematic elements, but it's also an issue with how they can fit into these different racial narratives in contexts where, in particular, people just kind of don't have that much of an understanding of how racism operates or how it might affect others, even if it doesn't affect you. I think there's a really interesting resonance here, which is that kind of question of how we talk about race and racism when we're talking about, or who particularly is talking about it, because we often talk about race and racism, particularly in an Anglophone sphere, in that kind of very Euro-American context of these are what races are, this is what racism looks like. And it leads to some, what Sarah's described as some very kind of complex identity issues and kind of quite complex discourse on a personal level in countries and regions and cultures where, the, where those ideas of identity self and categories are constructed differently. In, in archaeology, we see this popping up as well, and it kind of fits with this larger conversation. There is a, I would say, charming naivete, except the stakes are a little too high for it to be charming, of how some geneticists in particular think they're pushing back against racism with their material. And we see this in European prehistory, where I work, where there's a real emphasis, and it makes me absolutely Looney Tunes crazy. There's this huge emphasis that comes out over and over and over. We have new data. Look, this person had brown skin. Look, this person had dark skin. Look, this person had maybe blue eyes and dark skin. And it's as if it's this kind of debunking of racism. This is a prehistoric European person, and they had dark skin and blue eyes, so they're racist, got you. All it does when they do that first is create a point at which the white supremacists start looking for where the white people came in. And there are a lot of particular archaeological populations, and I'm not going to get into all of that mess, that get picked up in the kind of white supremacist communities. These are the white people who came in and got rid of all those, because all of these, many of these kind of prehistoric lineages don't carry on into the present. There's very little of that kind of very deep prehistoric genetic material that makes it into the present day. But also, over and over and over, it says... Your blood tells us about your skin color. Your genetics tell us about your skin color and your eye color and your hair texture. That information is important and tells us something about who you are as a person. And what they're doing every time they publish one of these individual from 8000 BC in Denmark had dark skin and kinky hair. All you've done over and over and over is say those phenotypes that are linked into that particular sort of European white supremacist racism those phenotypes are important. They have social meaning. They have social value. They're tied to your DNA. They're tied to who you are as a person. We have to record them. And I think this is also something that's emerging in the kind of ADNA world that I that I kind of sync up with. There, there is dialogue about this, but how we talk about the appearance of prehistoric people and how we talk about that through the lens of modern and particularly Eurocentric ideas of race is something that really isn't well dealt with and it certainly isn't grappled with very well. I want to go back 
maybe as a slight aside to Kate's comment earlier about sex, uh, the fact that this is about people having sex with each other. One thing that's erased in this uh, kind of wider discussion of ancestry is all of the ways in which people kind of relate to one another as kin that don't show up in that genetic kind of record or kind of can't be distilled into a heteronormative understanding of biological lineage. I was just going to say the best part of archaeology is when we get into the archaeology of Because honestly, I mean, this is fundamentally when we talk about the ADNA, and this is something I've published on and that I get particularly heated up about what we're talking about when we talk about ancient genetics and the way it tells us about population structure and practices. We're talking about straight sex. We're missing people who aren't having productive sexual relationships. We're missing people who are maybe having sexual relationships, but they aren't producing live young, whether that's people who are not fertile, whether that's people who are only having sex with same-sex partners or with partners who you know, aren't able to or maybe aren't allowed to have children. Um, we don't often talk about this in archaeology, but certainly fertility control is something that we know goes very deep in the past. And there are categories of people who don't get to have children uh, or whose children aren't allowed to live. So just by nature of telling stories about people through genetic data, we're only telling stories of productive heterosexual relationships. And that's a that's a huge problem when you start thinking about the vast majority of people who ever lived. Many people were producing live young. Many people were having cross-sex sexual relationships, but there were a ton of people who weren't. And those people just disappear the second we start talking about genetics. They are not part of the discourse. When we talk about biological sex, genetic data pools bimodally into male and female. It's not, of course, purely. We can talk about lots of chromosomal intersex conditions, some of which people refuse to refer to as intersex because that makes them very uncomfortable. But still, we tend to talk about male and female, male and female, male and female. And so all those people who aren't male or female who are intersex, but also all those people who have kind of gendered experiences of life that aren't our ideas of woman mapping onto female, man mapping onto male, those people also disappear and we lose the gender diversity that we know exists and we know existed at all times and all places in the past. We lose people that we might consider trans in the present discourse, people whose bodies say one thing about them, but whose self and experience of society says something very different. And those people also disappear when we, when we reduce identity down to genetics and particularly down to kind of contemporary ideas of genetics. And more than that, the way that we talk about the kind of spread and lineage of genetic material uh, tends to do some very ugly things because it's being done largely by people who aren't social science trained. So that massive migrations paper that I mentioned earlier said we have all this Y chromosome DNA and we have all this Y chromosome DNA that says people with an ancestry from Central Europe are showing up around 3000 BC in Western Europe and that central, sorry, not central Europe, um, step, step ancestry. And that step ancestry is rapidly spreading out and taking over and replacing, again, there's some really awful resonance here in the language, you see population replacement of step ancestry Y, y chromosome DNA uh, within, you know, a thousand years in most of Europe. And that very rapidly turns into rampaging men on horses raping all the women. 
rampaging men on horses, killing all the men. We don't have any archaeological evidence, and we know what archaeological evidence of genocide and mass death looks like. We don't have any of that for this period. It doesn't exist. This is purely driven by genetic material. And it sits in that same space that says the egg is passive and receptive and waits, the sperm is active and comes after it, right? And we're doing the exact same thing with our genetic data. Our Y chromosomes are spreading, their gametes are spreading, they're traveling into Europe, they're attacking these receptive, passive, uh, Neolithic women who are having these kind of dangerous, I should note, because this sits with those larger discourses, blonde, blue-eyed Y chromosomes from the step babies. And it does really ugly things to our stories of uh, gender and our stories of sex, but also who gets to be active in these stories, who gets to to be the active partner whose genetics are active and being transmitted is also kind of a very unexplored part of this discourse. And then there's all the populations who are being erased by kind of falling into this deeply bioessentialized, I think very narrow genetic uh, narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating question. And yeah, sim similar to, to some of what um, Kate's described, I think, in the context of American societies for a number of years, there's been genetic population studies who have remarked on, on a phenomenon that they call sex-biased mating, which is the term that they use for, for when you look at a contemporary population's genetic makeup and you can see that certain proportion of mitochondrial DNA, which is matrilineally inherited, uh, tends to come from particular populations, whereas Y chromosome lineages, which are patrilineal inherited, tend to come from other populations. So in the cases of the Caribbean and in much of the Americas, you'll find that in contemporary populations, there's a higher proportion of mitochondrial DNA that's inherited from what look like African and Native American women. And Y chromosomes are more likely to have a higher proportion that are inherited from, from what appear to be European men. And this, obviously, you know, it attests to the sexual regime of coloniality. Sex was a technique of domination and the kind of privileged access and often violent access that white men would have to Native American, Indigenous American and, and African women was part of this colonial regime. And what I think is really interesting is, is looking at the way this is kind of talked about and overlaid with narratives in both the scientific literature and also the, the way it's kind of relayed to the public. In the case of Brazil, so a, a kind of foundational text there is Gilberto Freire's The Masters and the Slaves. I and mean, it's actually quite a saucy text. It's written very much with a white male gaze. And it talks a lot about how the kind of success of Brazil's harmonious race relations is owing to the fact that Portuguese men were just such sensuous lovers who were who were just really into basically anyone, you know, women from anywhere. And it goes on to describe the kind of typical sexual initiation of young men in, in colonial Brazil. It would talk about how the maid, who's likely to be a woman of colour, uh, is usually like the, the first sexual encounter. And it's portrayed in a way that imagines this to be a kind of sensuous and, and, and you're sort of meant to imagine that it's consenting or, you know, it's, it's behind the curtains, but it's, you know, it's this, this kind of, everyone's doing it, right? So of course, there is a huge 
question mark over whether we can talk about consensual sex in, in contexts of, of enslavement and uh, coloniality. Although, you know, it, it is important to be aware that, that women in, in many colonial situations were trying to use their sexuality in ways that could potentially improve their, their situation. And there's not necessarily a way of, of knowing what proportion uh, corresponds to, to these different cases. In the US, there's kind of a more dominant narrative, particularly among African American communities, the idea that it is more likely that, that any kind of mixture within African American families with white ancestors, I think that many people would suspect that that probably occurred in a situation of you know, potentially violence, uh, but definitely kind of very unequal power relations. At the same time, in the US, there has been a real problem with the white population who tend to imagine that this didn't exist, that there were no, you know, there was no sex between slaveholders and enslaved women. It seems to me continually surprising, but even when people visit old plantation sites, in the in the tours, you'll you'll often have description of how the relationship was more kind of patriarchal. It was, you know, we were allowing them to live on our property, and it was a kind of mutually beneficial relationship. And and I think for many people, this is, you know, this is the way they would obviously prefer to imagine if you know that you you have ancestors who were slaveholders. But it is. I found it very telling when, when I would interview DNA test takers in, in both countries that there often emerged these narratives. On, on the one hand, you would have people who'd say, well, you know, people who identified as Afro-Brazilian or African-American, some people would look at their results and they'd say, well, I'm, I'm really only interested in the, in the African part because honestly, you know, the other part, I, I don't want to go into that part of my history. This is not everyone. Some people, genealogists in, in particular, are often committed to, you know, to trying to find out about all of their family history, regardless of how painful it might be, and to trying to put it into social context. And I would also find mainly among younger ancestry test takers that sometimes you would have these narratives of, well, it's nice to know that like I have a mixed ancestry and it's I think it, it just shows that people fell in love to make you. And it's a, a nice narrative to, to imagine, but it's, you know, I think considering the amount of ancestors that we all have biologically, it's not necessarily realistic to imagine that that kind of romantic situation is going to be the case for, for all of them. And I think there's kind of typically among kind of social science critiques of ancestry testing, there's there's often been a... And also among, you know, geneticists who are not within the industry kind of critiques of, of this phenomenon, there's often been a tendency to try and delegitimize the tests and say, you know, they're, they're complete rubbish, you know, then they're, they're not worth what you're paying for them. I think I wouldn't go down that road because I think it's important not to underestimate how, how powerful, how symbolic and, and powerful these results can be for people who are aware that their history has been denied for generations and this is a glimpse of something solid that you might be able to claim. I think it's wrong to say, no, you can't have that. You know, this is not something that you should take seriously. And in that sense, that relates to what Kate was saying at the beginning, that this is not to say that genetic tests are a complete 
fiction and there's no base to them at all. I think that having said that, we should also not imagine, we shouldn't buy into the narrative of some testing companies that this is the most important part of your identity, this is the most important part of yourself, and that this should necessarily contradict or override other narratives that you might have about your ancestry. I think that the kind of most critical and sophisticated engagements with these technologies tend to be among people who are trying to kind of triangulate this genetic data and put it alongside and in balance with and with other types of data. So taking into account oral history data, taking into account historical genealogical data, but also with an understanding of, of social history and an understanding of how identity and how relationships function. The idea that you can't simply capture an identity with a genetic category. So I think my kind of recommendation is for anyone who has taken a test or wants to take a test but wants to engage with it critically is to try and bear that in mind that this is a facet. This is something that a, a colleague at Howard University, Fatima Jackson, who's a biological anthropologist, has said that they're not the past, that they're, they're more like arrows pointing to the past. And to kind of create a firmer idea of, of our ancestry, you really need to build up a picture with lots of different sources of data and also bearing in mind that that also shouldn't override our subjective experiences and and different understandings of who we are. Thank you. You've just given me a beautiful segue to say what you've just said is actually why I think everyone should take an archaeology class, because this data is present and we have these sources of data available to us, but they are one piece of a lot of other things that can coexist and they can tell multiple narratives that contradict at different scales and that even contradict at different points in an individual's lifespan. Something that is true in the public-facing persona isn't necessarily true in the personal sense of identity, isn't necessarily true in the story that someone's children tell about them after their death. Uh, and yet all of those stories are stories that are important. And if there's one thing you learn in an archaeology degree, it's that no class of data is ever complete. And no class of data can tell a story by itself. And the, the things that we're looking at, whether they're genetic codes or bits of rock or bits of pottery, or whole landscapes, they only start giving us narratives when we start throwing ideas at them. How does this fit with changing ideas of kinship? How does this fit with political structure? Are those the same story? Are they different stories? Is it okay that they're different stories? Or do I need to just add another class of data in to see if, if it all holds together? And sometimes it doesn't. And I, I often, when I talk about how archaeologists make meaning, I use the, the metaphor of putting together a pot. So when we find a bunch of broken pieces of pottery, one of the things we do is try and piece them back together and tape them back together. And you'll see the people who do this, and I am no way near patient enough to do it myself, but they'll sit there for hours slowly putting bits of pottery together and then find another piece and take it all apart and start again until they have you know, most of a pot that fits all their pieces. And if someone finds more ceramic the next day, they're perfectly happy to take it all apart and put it all back together again differently. And that's kind of how I think we need to think about this when we're talking about social structure and history and culture. Think about this genetic data source that's becoming richer and richer and more and more complicated is it's another piece of pottery that we can tape to all the others. And maybe in 10 years, we'll have to take it apart and put it back together differently. And I think that's fine. And that's actually how, that's how knowledge grows. And that was it. Hopefully we have assembled at least part of a pot 
On our panel today, we've had Sarah Abel. Thanks, thanks for having me. Catherine Freeman. Thank you very much for the conversation. It was a heck of a lot of fun. And a special co-panelist, Carolyn Schuster. Yay, that was fun. was it. Sarah Abel, Catherine Freeman, Carolyn Schuster, and myself. Today's episode was produced by me, Alex, with help from the other familiar strangers, Simon Theobald, Claire Bajal, Timothy Johnston, Carolyn West, Sean Liu, Matthew Fung, Joe Clifford, and Jared Sim. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make this show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. Our most recent blog post is Understanding My Mum's Unorthodox Healing Practices about traditional Filipino medical practices. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and see you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>